You're listening to episode 39. Hey there, Business Generals family. Welcome to another super episode of the Business Generals podcast where I feature amazing guests and I ask in-depth questions about their entrepreneurial journey. You know, my belief is that it doesn't matter how your journey in life started. It's not that important because great or small, the important thing is how you finish. So whatever your situation today, I want you to know that you can get your hopes up, that you are good enough to chase your dreams. In today's show, family, I dig into how it all started for our feature guests, how they have built their brand, and I even get into all the juicy details about their big challenges, their growth moments, and all their big breakthroughs. So it's going to be an amazing show. I actually selfishly started this podcast because I love to hear how entrepreneurs did it, and I wanted to ask the questions for myself. So really, I am the number one student. So Get ready for amazing coaching tips, family, to help you maximize your business dreams. Welcome and thank you for joining me here on the Business Generals Podcast, where I chat with amazing entrepreneurs five days a week. Davis Mitawa here, your host. I am very excited to bring you today's feature guest, Dr. Nicholas Webb. Nick, are you ready to share your entrepreneurial story? Absolutely. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Nick is one of the world's top business thought leaders. As a senior partner at Larson Scientific Inc., Nicholas works with Fortune 500 companies throughout the world to help them lead their industries in innovation and strategy. Actually, Nick was just in Sydney about two weeks ago, which is uh, very near my neck of the woods here. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. Nicholas is a best-selling author who has been uh, awarded over 45 patents for breakthrough technologies, including one of the world's uh, smallest medical implants. He is known as an innovation evangelist, speaks around the world on the future of the economy, innovation, technology, leadership, and healthcare. And so I'm very excited to have him on the show. So Nick, welcome um, to the show. But before we dive in, maybe just take 30 seconds and tell us who is Nick outside of business. Well, you know, I... You know, technology and emerging technology is kind of my religion, you know, so I I don't really work in an office. I work in a lab and, uh, you know, we're very immersed in wearable technologies and 3D and uh, robotics and a whole range of, um, of other interesting technologies. So my hobby is very closely linked to what I do for a living, and that is, uh, you know, to sort of try to anticipate the future so that I can help my customers do a better job of making sure they're relevant. Mm-hmm. And tell us a little bit about family and where whereabouts you're based and stuff like that. Yeah, so we're, I'm located in Northern California. I've been married for 26 years, have four great kids, and uh, you know we're a typical kind of not, not unlike a uh, Eastern uh, Australian family. You know, we're very outdoorsy, do a lot of uh, uh, just about anything you can imagine from an outdoor perspective, and and also my kids have adopted my interest in, in technology as well. So we share a lot of that interest as well. That's great. And now, Nick, how long would you say um, you've been on your own working in sort of a full-time business for yourself? I always tell people that, you know, I haven't had a a job in 30 years. So (laughs) I I quickly aborted corporate life uh, in favor of being autonomous. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion today about so-called life hacking. I think I may have been one of the founders of life hacking, you know, so... (laughs) Um, Tell us a little bit about um, your current 
revenue streams and how that is structured. And then maybe we'll talk a little bit about your journey, how that started. But how does it look today? So the way that um, I make a living is is kind of unusual. It's It requires that you have to do multiple disciplines well in order to get the the revenue to make this work, right? So I compete with some of the largest consulting f- firms in the world. Um, and so clients that are looking for help on strategy, innovation, and customer experience reach out to us and we help them build you know, future-ready organizations. But in order to be a successful boutique consultant where you're competing with the very, very large firms, you really truly have to earn the right to be able to serve those clients. And by that, I mean, you know, you need to write popular books. You need to speak at all the top conferences. You need to have a community of fellow thought leaders, you know, sort of validate your uh, importance in in this uh, sort of thought leader ecosystem. And so the way I make money primarily is in my consulting practice, uh, although I do have, I think, a speaking business that most speakers would love to have. I, you know, I, I'll do 60 to 80 talks in 2017 around the world and I have the great honor of sharing ideas with some really, really cool people about really, really cool things. Um, you know, books aren't a moneymaker, but they're a means to, you know, helping propagate your message and your differential view of the universe. So, again, you have to write books, you have to speak at the right events, and then if you do those things well, then you get to be able to do the, the far more profitable and kind of interesting business of consulting. Mm-hmm. And you also run your own science type businesses, right? Innovation type business. Yeah, right. So I mean, I'm, I you know I've launched. Uh, I invented one of the world's smallest microsilicone implants for ocular surface disease. Uh, gosh, seventeen, eighteen years ago, I invented one of the world's first wearable medical technologies before there was even a functional internet. Um, <clears throat> you know, I am involved today in. Uh, we are building out a disruption lab where. We are working with uh, some strategic partners, universities and industrial partners to start building out uh, connected technologies to help um, meet some of the new challenges of, uh, of healthcare. So, uh, yeah, I get to do some really cool stuff. I, I, I do have some of my own proprietary technologies that we work on every day. Um, but then I have the benefits of a revenue stream from a, a successful consulting practice. So that's great. And how, how would you say the journey as an entrepreneur started out for you? Well, I, uh, I, it was interesting. I was uh, going to school and working as a lifeguard in Central California. And a buddy of mine called me and said that he had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for me, that there was a new company starting that was making the first minimally invasive implant for cataract surgery. And he needed somebody to help uh, market this product um, in one of the territories he had had. And in order to do that, you had to spend several weeks in a wet lab doing phacoemulsification surgery on pig's eyes. And there was something about um, the the ophthalmology and cataract surgery that just really intrigued me. And um, so I was, I did very well uh, with Star Surgical, helping them launch this, this amazing technology. Uh, but then uh, I went on to uh, own my own company in, in ophthalmology. 
Um, in fact, I worked with a very famous refractive surgeon, Dr. Ron Jensen, which was the first surgeon to really bring refractive surgery to North America. Uh, we created a line of technologies which were breakthrough in the area of refractive surgery. And eventually sold that company to one of the largest medical companies in the country. And then uh, from there, you know, I had some early lucky breaks in my career and then decided that I would take some of the learnings from those early experiences at a relatively young age and start providing consulting services to other companies within healthcare. And that's kind of what started it. So you focus, your initial focus on consulting was um, strategy around innovation? Yes. We used to even have a new product development function here where we developed non-regulated medical devices, um, but that business has become very commoditized. So instead of helping companies uh, invent bright, shiny objects, today our practice is centered around how helping companies understand the future trajectory of technology and consumerization so that they can take those learnings and then apply it to their business to drive revenue, profitability, and, and really to do a far better job of serving their customers. So can we touch on um, on some of those um, early pieces of um, inventions that, that succeeded? Give us maybe one example, especially I think the, the I one. How did that come about for you? And how did that whole whole process evolve? Well, so um, I was uh, involved uh, with a company that was in the uh, dry eye business, the ocular surface disease business. And, you know, one of the things that um, provides opportunities for inventors is when you see that there's a problem you, you and you start really, really focusing on how to fix a problem. And if you can do that in an affordable and customer acceptable way, uh, then you get to win at this. So I was actually, uh, these little implants go in the little holes in the corner of your eyes are called the puncta. Those are kind of the tear drains. And what they do is they implant into those holes to keep the natural tear on the surface of the eye. And uh, I was actually at a um, at an automotive shop having my car service, and I noticed some radiators on the hanging on the wall, radiator hoses. And I realized that if you could apply a flexible accordion type shaft to these implants, that you could solve one of the biggest problems, which was the fact that these would pop out of people's eye because of the, the pressure of rubbing your eye. So we uh, we designed it, uh, patented it, and uh, launched it to the market. And, uh, you know, sure enough, it provided better anatomical accommodation to the vertical puncta. And uh, I think today it's still one of the most popular ways to include the puncta for the treatment of dry eye syndrome. And so um, do you still own that product or have you sold it off? That was actually a technology I designed for a client that I was consulting with. Um, but, you know, uh, most of the stuff that I tend to do in my own inventing is I'll design it build it, test it to the market. Most of the time, they don't work, but sometimes they work enough to be successful. In fact, if you look at the success of innovation across the biggest companies in the world, about 80% of every product that gets launched into the market fails. So when you look at innovation, and I have a book uh, called uh, Invent Stuff that really speaks to this. When you invent uh, a product, you know, it's sort of like a stock portfolio. You know, you're going to have some products that are high risk, high reward, and you're going to have some innovations that are low risk, low reward based on their incremental design. 
So if you want to be successful in the inventing space, you have to look at it from a portfolio perspective. You know, you take those big crazy risks and then you take those incremental innovations that are less risky, but also deliver less profitability. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, I've, I've started and sold and started and sold several businesses and technologies. Um, in fact, I started an educational toy company, which we're now in discussions with uh, uh, with some companies about acquiring that business. So that's that's kind of the way that I've positioned my inventing. A lot of people, they invent products and they build their future around it. And that's great and probably preferable. I just don't have that kind of attention span. Well, I want to I talk about your consulting practice because um, I guess there's a number of... Um, coaches or people who are trying to um, transition out of corporate or professional services to start their own businesses. Um, so how, um, how did you go about creating your consulting practice in, the, in, the, in those early days? You know, luckily, um, I had I entered into the consulting space with a great success story. I mean, many people knew of uh, the company that I was the companies that I were involved in, and they knew my contribution to those companies. And uh, so, honestly, I, I kind of reached out to m- in my Rolodex of people that I had known in the industry for for several years, and said, "Hey, listen, just want to let you know, you know, I've, I've just sold my business, and uh, I'm now providing some advisory service." And I right off the bat had um, uh, two or three great companies uh, take me up on uh, on working with them on a on a freelance basis. Now, back this is going back, gosh, twenty six, twenty seven years ago. Uh, on this part of my, you know, my entrepreneurship. And back then, freelancing was not commonplace. In fact, working from your home, which I did, was considered kind of flaky, right? Um, so it, it, you know, it was met with a little bit more of a challenge than it would be today. So, you know, the first thing you do is you look at that inner circle of people that know you and, and uh, are aware of your, your, your unique and, and special value proposition. And then uh, from there, you start to go out beyond that periphery and start, you know, doing more cold call type marketing to find those those clients and other forms of marketing, but to find those clients that don't currently know you. Uh, certainly books have been a big deal. I've had a lot of success with my books. My What Customers Crave is a number one best selling book on customer relations. And, you know, you got a CEO that's got a problem. They pick up a book and then they... If they like the the approach and uh, and the methodologies and the research, uh, it's very common that I get calls. I'll probably get a call today. Somebody that read my book and wanted to find out if uh, if my firm can help them meet some of their challenges. Mm. So that's part of your growth strategy and your reach out um, strategy today. But how did you grow? So after those first initial. Um, customers or clients did you just cold call or networking what did you do you know one of the greatest thought leaders in the area of business has got to be brian tracy i think he's written 500 books or something it's just the guy's amazing and i had the great honor of being able to talk with uh, with brian i said brian how is it that you have become so uber successful and he said nick it's really simple i do everything I go, well, what does that mean? You go, we do telemarketing. We do email. We do uh, direct mail. We do 
pay-per-click campaigns. We now this, this is more contemporaneous, um, and and so th- that I picked that message up from him years ago. And back then, we didn't have the ability of to leverage you know social analytics and uh, Google Analytics with targeted uh, pay-per-click advertising. We didn't really have the chance to leverage content marketing and the kinds of things that we do today, which really run my business uh, back then. You know, we had to use the the more simplex, uh, more cryptic forms of reaching out, which was mail, trade shows, and uh, outbound telemarketing was really how we we started to build our pipeline. Today, of course, we have a very comprehensive uh, approach towards uh, leveraging a very very comprehensive digital media strategy. Uh, in addition to our digital media strategy, my my talks um, yesterday. I was on the other side of the country speaking to the Constructors Association. I believe there was uh, some 2,000 people in the audience, all executives, and uh, in sharing the future vision of what their industry looked like. You know, by the time I landed back in California, there was a half a dozen emails from CEOs and their assistants wanting to set up a call with me to find out how I can take my body of research and apply it to their business. That's very cool. Um, talk, talk to me about what you mean by digital media strategy today and your growth strategy. Well, you know, we do a lot in this space, and, and we try to take it to a different level. Um, you know, a lot of people think that if they put together a website and uh, some social media challenges uh, channels that they've nailed it. But, you know, uh, Jay Baer wrote a great book called Utility, and, and his point in his book is very well taken, and that is basically your digital properties need to be value dispensers. And by that, I mean you need to only use digital properties for the purpose of delivering gratuitous free value that customers can benefit from that, as Jay Baer would say, is so good that they would be willing to pay for it had it not been available free. Um, that's how we really earn that. That's where we get that earned media. So we have a uh, very comprehensive pay-per-click strategy. We have dashboards that run all day long in our offices. So, you know, at any given point during the day, I can tell you, you know, what our visitorship looks like on social media, what visitorship looks like on our pay-per-click campaign through Google Analytics. I can tell you what keywords are trending, uh, what click, what ads are clicking through. Um, we essentially do what a lot of great companies do, and that is we have developed a digital command center. Um, and, and I think that's really today, given the fact that there, the good news is digital ubiquity allows you to connect to lots of people. And we know through this new concept of micro mobile moments that as much as 97% of the time that somebody is looking for your business, as much as 97% of the time, their first touch is going to be that connected device. Um, if you Google micro mobile moments and take a look at um, at the body of work done by Google there, you can see that, you know, people are visiting us for a wide range of things and primarily through connected uh, handheld mobile devices. Um, so, again, you know, uh, our strategy is a, a combination of earned media, paid media. Um, I think I have kind of an unusual pathway to sales in that. The overwhelming majority of my sales in my business comes from the first thing we have to do is sell a speaking engagement. And then when we sell a speaking engagement from there, um, we virtually always get a uh, qualified lead. The other thing that's important about my business is that I'm in the low volume, high profit business. So we are 
hitting our revenue targets when we have you know as few as eight to twelve customers. So it's it's very different from companies that are selling you know a five thousand dollar coaching package. Um, and for those coaches out there, and we tried co- executive coaching, and we realized that it's just so not scalable. You know, you spend all day on the phone, and and um, it's really hard to bill enough to be able to really make that model work. Um, I mean, if you don't have very high revenue expectations and you're lo- not looking to build a scalable business, coaching works. But the only way you can make coaching really work is you have to sort of McDonaldize uh, the content so that you can scale it. And by that, I mean, you know, downloadable, you know, courses uh, that people pay for and, you know, a range of access that's on a strata that the more you pay, the more access you get kind of thing. You really have to be, you know, and it's just the only way it can really work. So how do you scale your consulting practice today? So in my case, uh, you know, rather than being, I am the, um, I have found sort of a sweet spot. I think that every entrepreneur, especially young entrepreneurs, make the mistake of having a central focus on how much money do I make. And I think the first question you have to ask yourself is, wait a minute, let's back up here. First question we need to ask ourselves is, what do I want my daily life to look like? Right. If I could easily hire 30 consultants and build a 30, 40 million dollar, not easily, but I could certainly do it, build a really, really big consulting practice um, and make a lot more money. But then I would steal away from me. I'd probably work in 12 to 16 hours a day. Uh, A lot of the revenue would be going to overhead and other people. So what I did is I asked myself two questions. What did I, what do I want my lifestyle to look like and how much money is enough? And, uh, then you have a very different strategy that you build out. You know, I work with some of the top brands in the world to help them develop enterprise strategy. It's interesting to me to see how many failing organizations have forgot to ask themselves, why are we doing this in the first place? And what do we really expect to get out of it? Because that is precipitous of everything that is going to uh, ultimately go downstream in terms of the way you build a strategy. So the way that I scale it is I realize that I'd like to do every year two to three million dollars in gross revenue. But I also knew that I don't like I don't want to manage an infrastructure. I, that was really important to me. I don't want to spend any time managing other people, and I don't want to manage facilities and assets. I just want to be able to be at a ground level where I get to make the most amount of money delivering the highest possible value to customers. So the way that I do it is I take, I've identified low-value activities, and I outsource those to freelancers. And then in the rare occasion that there is a competency gap in the services that I provide, then um, I will bring in a freelance associate consultant. That, and I, I have folks that some of the best people on the planet that I've worked with for, gosh, over two decades. So if I need somebody to do social analytics, I'll bring in somebody like a Dr. Malcolm DeLeo. If I need somebody to do this, I'll bring in you know, somebody else. So it, I tend to be, you know, I'm very client-facing. Um, the, the kind of work that I do could have tens of millions of dollars of impact on a corporation, maybe more. And because of that, 
the value that I deliver is very, very, very high. So it allows me to, it affords me the opportunity to charge them a lot for that service, which then allows me to have the time necessary to deliver the kind of service that they would expect. So I scale it by getting at the top of the value prop. And then I, anything that's a low value proposition gets scaled out to low cost freelancers. And for me, that's worked for years. I, you know, I live in a beautiful home on three acres uh, with the tennis courts and, you know, kind of my own compound. I built a uh, detached office on my property that looks like a, a lab that NASA might operate. Um, I get to work with really beautiful people that want to do great things for, for the world and for their business and for the people that work there. And, um, and so I think it's really created the kind of lifestyle that I've wanted. And this has gone on for, for 26 years. Like I've been doing the consulting piece for 26 years. I, I was profitable day one. And, um, you know, I'm always, uh, I, I always have more business than I can actually take on. So it's, it's just been really a beautiful thing. I love, I love how you've walked us through that process and, uh, appreciate you sharing that. Um, how did you find your unique message and, you know, that niche and that core focus? Because there's a lot of consultants. How did you find your voice? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think, I, in fact, that might be the question because, again, and, and maybe it's age onset lucidity or something, but, you know, I would suggest to any young entrepreneur or any old entrepreneur for that matter to maybe press a reset because um, I think that, what I have found, without any exception, I, I, I got a, I got picked up uh, yesterday and was driven to uh, the airport by a, a gentleman who was 68 years old. He was a benefits manager for years, and uh, he then uh, actually started a car service, a black car service to to shuttle executives. And he picked me up at my hotel and took me to the airport. Here's a guy who has two interesting things and it seems odd. He loves driving. He loves just, he, he said on the weekends, my wife and I, we would just take a drive to this beautiful, this was in Hershey, Pennsylvania, beautiful area. So I love to drive and I love to meet great, interesting people. And he, he started to tell me all of the executives and all of the companies and all of the celebrities that he's driven in just the two years that he's done this. He said, for 20 years, I woke up every day doing something I hated. I worked inside of an office. I, I, I dealt with people that were not fun, good people. And today, unfortunately, at 68 years of age, I've found my zenith. I, I, um, I get to drive in the country, which may sound or, you know, sort of odd to some people, but it's what I love to do. And I love to meet great people. So my point is, is that when we connect who we are, who we really are with what we do every day, then that in my, in my opinion is the sheer definition of success. And you don't have to be a gazillionaire to make this work. Um, I, you know what, my business grew like crazy when I finally committed to doing what I love to do. And speaking is my, is my happy place. And, and, and I finally said, you know what? This is when I'm on stage sharing my passion and love about innovation and customer experience and enterprise strategy in the future. That's when, and, and it's weird, the more that I leaned into the, what I loved, the more money I make. I mean, I next year we're projected to do a million dollars in speaking engagements. Think about that. 
right? Um, that's and you know, yesterday after I was done addressing over two thousand people, there was a line of people there and a professional photographer. People just wanted to get a picture with me. It just seems it's surreal, right? I mean, little old me, why? And I think that if you've ever seen, um, if you've ever seen um, people who are connected to their to their authentic self. You, that's where you see amazing quality and that's where you see beautiful customer experiences. And we know that quality and customer experiences are the things that deliver the highest amount of commercial value. So isn't it interesting that we make the most amount of money when we finally commit to stop focusing about money and start focusing about how we deliver special value in a way that's connected to, the, to our core beliefs and really who we are? Deep wisdom here, Nick. Uh, I really love this. Um, Question on thought leadership. Um, I've heard about this uh, recently, and I I know you're you're big on, uh, you promote yourself as a thought leader. Um, What is thought leadership, uh, and how can you connect that with your most recent book? Yeah, I read an interesting blog post. Uh, I forgot what blog it was on, blasting the word thought leader. uh, Because, and and, and I think that the the blog post was absolutely right. You you don't get to just wake up one day and call yourself a thought leader, right? (laughs) Right, yeah, you can. And that's the problem everybody does. And when it's sort of one of the, it's the elasticity of supply and demand. When everybody's a thought leader, nobody is a thought leader. And so I think, you know, uh, I remember uh, Seth Godin, uh, I think it was being, he was interviewed or it was maybe in one of his program, in one of his books I read. Uh, he was talking about, somebody asked him, they said, Seth Godin, you're one of the most successful business authors on the planet. How do you market these great, how do you market these books and how do you get such popularity? I want to follow your lead in the way you've marketed yourself because your marketing is amazing. He said, it's nothing to do with marketing. I write great books. Right. And, and the truth of the matter is Seth Godin is deservedly popular because he is very thoughtful about not just telling great stories in a very entertaining way. Seth also has some content that is novel and actionable. And so I think that, you know, you have to be very, very careful about what you claim about yourself because it's very in a digitally connected world. Um, everybody's watching. You know, what have you done? You know, it's interesting. I I speak on innovation and yet my competitive speakers, I don't know one of them, not one of them that has ever invented anything, right? They're making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year talking about disruptive innovation, yet they've never risked. I lost a half a million dollars with just one of my ideas, uh, a fitness product. You know, until you have taken a face plant and wasted lots of money and made lots of stupid decisions <laughs> and, and a few good ones, do you have the street cred? You know, you don't want to go to the top of Everest with a Sherpa that calls himself a a Everest thought leader. You want the guy who's been there, made it to the top, and dragged his party back down alive. And I think that's the criteria for so-called thought leadership. And and um, 
Let's talk about um, the book that you have um, just been touring with um, and promoting. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm really excited about this because at the end of the day, I've spent most of my time looking at innovation as a bright, shiny object. And I think a lot of people think about when they're thinking about innovation, they see it as a, as a thing, right? But when you look at Uber and you look at many of the other great innovations, you know, Netflix included and, and so many others that... The future of innovation, I believe, is not just inventing bright, shiny objects with the medium of, of new technologies. I think the most exciting opportunity for entrepreneurs and for any business is to understand that the greatest wealth and the greatest opportunities in business are going to come from people who have identified ways to invent new and better human experiences. And, you know, you look at all of the startups that are doing well. You look at every technology that's doing well. Their real expertise is the fact that they know how to invent beautiful experiences. Apple, their biggest innovation is, you know, really the iconic user interface that makes complex computing beautiful for the user. And they took that UX design of, of object-oriented or... or um, uh, graphic user interface and they applied that philosophy of taking the ugly and the complex and the confusing and turned it into a beautiful experience. They've applied that to their retail environments and today Apple is the most successful retailer in the world. But what they've learned is that you need to do three things. You need to develop beautiful blended experiences. In other words, your physical experiences and your digital properties need to be exceptional and by that I mean they need to deliver meaningful net value across a range of customer personas. The second thing that entrepreneurs need to realize is that they need to engineer a customer journey that is essentially perfect. And in the book, I talk about the five touch points. There is the pre-touch moment. Most entrepreneurs lose 30% of their revenue potential because they are accidental or incidental in the way in which they architect those pre-touch research moments. But we know that... For an example, there's a study that was done by the Harvard Business Review that found that if you're a restaurant and you go from a five-star to a four-star review on Yelp, it's the difference between profitability and bankruptcy. We know that hyper-influential social communities and the way in which we deliver exceptional experiences on those pre-touch research moments are so important. And so the first touch point really is where people decide if they're going to choose you. A lot of people, they, they pay to get on the top of uh, Google and then people click on their site and they find that there's no gratuitous relevant value to them. So the first touch part of this journey is what we call the pre-touch moment. And then there's that first touch moment, the way in which we set the trajectory of the relationship. And then the third touch is called the core experience. What's it like to do business with you? Most organizations develop punitive business practices that really punish their customers. What's the, the last touch? What's the last thing that you leave them with in that last touch moment? And then the fifth touch point in this customer journey is the way in which you authentically stay in touch with that customer in a way that's not selling them anything. And in addition to architecting these perfect five-touch moments, the, the entrepreneur and the established business alike needs to look at their customers very differently. I think the part that was most shocking after three years of research on this book was I found that everything that I learned in school about market demographics was completely wrong. It turns out that it doesn't matter what 
somebody's skin color is or what their income is or their gender, their political persuasions. What really matters when we're thinking about engineering perfect experience or even when we're designing world-class technologies is we have to understand what customers hate and what they love. You know, when you go to an Apple store, they do something that they call politely probing. They'll, you walk in there and they will probe you. They'll just ask you a few questions. And they're not doing that to try to sell you anything. They're too good to sell you something. That would be indignant. What they want to find out is, what is your persona? Who are you? Not from any demographic perspective, but who are you from the perspective of what you hate and what you love? Now, I've been around Apple for a long time, and I'm usually in a hurry. So when I go to an Apple store, I'm not lonely. I'm not there to visit. I just want to get my stuff, and I want to leave. They instantly realize that I'm a transactionalist, and they deliver to me a perfect experience to expedite my process, to get me in and to get me out in a very beautiful way because they were thoughtful enough to not just know and learn about my persona types, They also pre-invented the perfect experience just for me. Now, my wife is uh, not, she's kind of the opposite in terms of temperament. She's very friendly, very wonderful person, loves everyone. Really, Mary Poppins, you know, just loves everyone. And she'll go in there and she wants to visit and she wants to be immersed in the experience. And so they realize that she's a nurturing type, somebody that they need to invest time and, and, uh, and, and to build a relationship with. So they set her up at the Genius Bar and they talk and they share with each other ideas about how she's going to use the platform. And then during that period of time, their associates deliver to her a beautiful experience that's so unique and special for her persona. And, you know, as a result of that, she walks out with boxes of Apple products. This is the level of granularity that the best startups and the best organizations in the world will use to be able to create perfect experiences. You know, I heard you say Apple doesn't have um, like user manuals in the way that other products have. Is that? Can you talk about that? that well, true? you know, the one thing is when you look at um, an Apple, when you buy a, an Apple product, think about the iPhone for an example. When I go around the world and I ask the audience, could everybody who has purchased a Apple product recently please raise your hand? Pretty much 90% of the audience have bought some Apple product. Then I asked them an interesting question. I said, how many people in this room still have the box? You know what's interesting? Virtually everybody that bought the Apple product still has the box. Why is that? Well, the Apple team realized that every moment matters. And the best organizations in the world understand that every moment matters. And again, What we want to do in customer experience, what I love about the work I did in this book, What Customers Crave, is that I've discovered that the best organizations, after talking to some 2,000 executives and researching tens of thousands of businesses, many of which that, uh, that were great at one time and are now failing, what I found was that the best organizations really took the time to look at every micro moment within these various moments. And Apple wanted that box and that initial experience of engaging the technology to be similar to opening a box that maybe, let's call it a Fabergé egg, right? Or something from Tiffany's. They wanted that experience to be amazing. That micro-mobile moment was impactful in setting the trajectory of the way you feel about the brand. But the other thing that happens when you open up that app, that Apple iPhone box is you gasp, not just because of the beauty of this technology, but the lack of a 900-page user manual to tell you how to address 
user errors. And, and that's because there isn't any, right? So it's about how do we make this experience so perfect and so beautiful at every single touch point and touch moment and every micro moment? Apple, I don't think, I don't, there are very few people that do that better. I talk about Mac Cosmetics. I talk about a really interesting company called SafeLight that, uh, that's an automotive glass company. I talk about In-N-Out Burger, one of the best restaurants in the world in my book. So it's interesting when you find the people who are winning in their respective categories. I find that there are three things they always do. They blend those experiences in a way that delivers exceptional experiences in both digital and non-digital environments. They take the time to understand their customers, not from the perspective of market demographic, but from the perspective of what these range of personas love and what they hate. And then they engineer across those five touch points, beautiful, beautiful experiences that are far above the customer's baseline level of expectation. And, and it, it was, uh, this, I, call it, I told somebody the other day, they go, what kind of book is it? I said, you know, it's a poetry book. <laughs> because when I look at this, it, it, the beauty of companies that care enough to deliver exceptional experiences are, as my 10-year-old daughter would say, delicious experiences. When we can do that, the universe rewards us with wheelbarrows of money every single day. Um. I got a couple of questions very quickly. Um, how what what has been the feedback so far on the book? Um, can you share that? I have uh, several companies that are using it as their playbook for their formal customer experience strategy. Um, you know, we ha- the pro- the book. There's a great uh, video review on the Amazon page of um, of uh, marketing. Web- the marketing book uh, podcast reviewed it. Uh, the so the professional reviewers like uh, Publishers Weekly uh, gave me a very optimistic and beautiful review. I believe I'm five star reviews on Amazon, and I think I'm up to 15 reviews now. The book just launched, uh, but I can tell you that. Uh, so many people. Uh, there was, uh, 350 books were sold uh, two weeks ago at a large pharmaceutical uh, company, and they're in each of these various business units are using this as their playbook to build out their customer experience strategy. And in fact, that goes to something I think is very interesting. One of the things that I discovered is that the organizations that deliver the worst experiences tend to make the least amount of money. They tend to have the lowest quality of work life, and they have um, the most unsatisfied customers. Customers. It turns out that empl- employers that treat their employees well, that believe in crowdsourcing and enterprise collaboration, they attract the best talent, especially millennial talent. They're the most profitable. They have the highest level of customer promotion of any company. So the reason a lot of people think, well, gee, customer experience seems sort of incidental. It's kind of the last thing I'm going to get to. I want to, I want to look at finance. I want to look at, uh, you know, HR. I want to look, but it turns out that actually it might just be that customer experience design might be the first place you start when you're thinking about building out an enterprise strategy or a startup strategy. Um, because at the end of the day, our studies show that the companies that don't have a formal CX strategy, customer experience strategy, that those organizations are failing with mathematical certainty, whereas organizations that are using better forms of gaining actionable insights and building customer experience strategies around those insights, they're making the most money, they're better places to work, and they have customers who love and promote them. I love what you said about you know, how 
two different personas. You walk into an Apple store, you know, some is a transactionalist and another person maybe wants more of a, um, spend more time in the store. And you said they've pre-invented a perfect experience for each one of those personas. So I think that's a, that's a big thing, big takeaway for me for, for anybody listening to say, you know, let's think about what we're doing and pre-invent that experience. Now you, you say you spent three years on, on research. Um, that's a big investment, um, Nick. Yeah. Well, we also built out, you know, uh, as a shameless entrepreneur, we also built out a, a complete company, a complete di- division of my consulting practice called Crave, C-R-A-V-V-E, um, uh, just to help companies write the ship. And, and uh, already, um, you know, we have hundreds of thousands of uh, consulting proposals that have gone out in just the last few weeks. So, you know, it's been interesting. This body of research, you know, obviously is for sale in the form of consulting, and it's worked out really, really good for us. We, we speculated this was an unmet need. You know, one way to look at this, it's the uberfication of everything. In healthcare, is being totally uberfied. About 70% of what we do is in health care. You know, patients can make or break a hospital, a doctor, or a clinic today because of the consumerization of healthcare. Everything is being hyper-consumerized. Organizations that don't have a good CX strategy are going to fail. And so the neat thing about this is, is even though we did make a big research, uh, a big, a big effort into the research, it's also turned into uh, a great, uh, a great business. And um, all of that's at, and also people can download a free chapter of the book at what customers crave.com um, and that'll at least kind of give them a feel for for the book and if they hit the book button they can also watch a video review of the book wonderful so we'll link that up um, in the show notes um, hey we've only got a few minutes left and I've had a, a heap more questions but um, I want to ask you a couple of quick questions in succession maybe if you can just give me some really short answers and then that way I can get more of um, of how you operate. Um, was there a, a moment in your business where you felt that was a big breakthrough moment or it's just been a progressional compounding? Yeah, thing? I think that um, I have had a range of breakthroughs over the years that you can see from those learnings there was rapid expansion. Uh, I would say the most recent one for me was I spend so much time looking at what I should do that I am constantly looking at other things that I should do. And then I look at other things that I should be doing. And then it turns out that the best thing that I've ever done is to put together a daily list of things that I need to stop doing. And I know that sounds arcane, but it turns out that the Pareto principle is alive and well for entrepreneurs. We spend 80% of our time doing stuff that gets us 20% of our benefits, and we spend 20% of our time doing things that get 80% of our benefits. We need to be thoughtful about constantly weeding out those 80% of things that deliver only 20% of our enterprise benefits. Uh, seems It seems uh, you know incidental. The impact for my business has been amazing. I changed I, I, stuff like I stop looking at emails throughout the day. I look at emails in the morning and I do, I do about three, I look at them again at three o'clock. I stop taking calls from certain types of, uh, of people and vendors and, and, uh, and I've changed the way in which I communicate to certain clients. Um, I've changed what kind of business. There's a whole list of, uh, we have built out what we call a knife, a no fly zone. So we have developed a list of customers we won't do business with just because, um, you know, they're not friendly. (laughs) Not, they're not evil. 
they're just not nice. And um, we don't hate them. We just think they belong to somebody else. And so once you start, and there's a great book called The Pumpkin Plan that talks about the importance of firing uh, non-profitable and, and, um, and, and abusive customers. So well, I've been very, very blessed. I, literally, I can tell you that 90% of every one of my clients haven't just been uh, great customers. They've also turned in, into true family friends. But every once in a while, you get a hold of, uh, of customers that, you know, they just they don't really belong to you. They, they should be somewhere else. And, and uh, um and so again, I think the best advice I can give entrepreneurs is be very, very, be very jealous and, and thoughtful with your time and be very thoughtful about the behavioral habits that you get into and start taking a look at creating a list every week of the things that you are absolutely not going to do. And then, of course, conversely, take a look at the most productive activities that you have throughout the week that deliver the most revenue and the most enterprise benefit, and then try to bolster those activities. But as you, if you want to succeed as an entrepreneur today, given hyper-competition, you really have to be far more strategic in the way in which you use every moment of your day. And I found that that was really most recently one of the most impactful parts of my business. That's, that's great wisdom. Thanks for sharing that. Um, can you give us a, a little bit of a look in, into what a day in your life looks like? Uh, but firstly, how it looked like when you started your business versus how it looks like today? Yeah, when I started, you know, it was, uh, I was hoping that the business was going to invent itself, right? I, I just sort of did whatever the business demanded. So I, I moved, I moved in a very reactive way. I mean, uh, I would just try to sell everybody anything I could possibly sell them and then just hope that, you know, that uh, the next big deal would come in. I mean, that's literally how I started my consulting business. And it was poorly directed. Uh, the value I delivered was uh, diluted because I was not focused in the, in the value creation that I had for customers. So I think that, you know, the thing for me that, uh, that really, really changed is I became far, even though my business, you know, there's, there's really one person that works here, even though we're a multi-million dollar uh, business, uh, you know, there's my, myself and, and my wife, um, and, and freelancers. Um, and, and the reason that it's worked is that I have become very systematic in prioritizing, uh, productive activities and non-productive activities. So what that means for me is, uh, I deliver value to my clients through a combination of scheduled phone calls and through on-site visits I schedule those very, very carefully. You know, so if I'm in Kansas, uh, I work it out to swing down and meet with somebody in Dallas, Fort Worth. And, you know, if I'm in if I'm in Singapore, then I take advantage of that time to swing down to Sydney or wherever. Uh, when I'm in London, I make sure I see my folks in Paris and Bordeaux. So I, I'm thoughtful about how I how I aggregate time and effort and money. I try to create assembly lines around the work I do. Uh, if there's anything that's low value, I send it off to somebody else. So I think developing processes, methods, tools, and systems around delivering the most amount of work with the least amount of effort. That's, that's really what today looks like. That's great. That's great. And, um, I normally ask what great books people, um, you, you, what you would recommend for entrepreneurs, but I think we'll leave it at your book. I think that's an amazing book that anybody can go and pick up from Amazon and and from that link you've given us, what customerscrave.com to be able to start from there. So I'll quickly move on to, um, how can people best connect with you? 
So for my speaking business, uh, my speaking website is simply nickweb with two B's dot com. And um, they can, you know, they can always, you know, I'm very easy to reach. I'm very accessible. My email address is simply nick at nickweb.com. And, uh, and uh, you know, all my contact information is there. Uh, you know, we try to be very, very accessible. Uh, we do spend, uh, you know, we get calls all the time from entrepreneurs and, and, and even competitors. And we love to collaborate and share ideas. And, and so, you know, time permitting, I'm always, you know, interested in talking to and collaborating and learning from others. Mm. Amazing. Thanks for sharing that. So before I ask my last question, um, Nick, I just want to thank you and acknowledge you for all the work you've done, uh, especially, you know, in the medical, medical space. I've got close family members who have had very difficult times with their, with eyesight. So all the technology that you've provided in the marketplace has really helped a lot of people around the world. And, and, and for coming on the show and sharing all that wisdom, um, I really love the work you've done with that book. So I'll be looking out to grab a copy myself. Um, so really thankful. Um, for the last question, Nick, um, when all is said and done, do you think about legacy and uh, what legacy would you love to leave and be remembered for and tell us why? Well, you know, when you have four kids, you think about legacy all the time. And uh, as you get older and you realize that you have a shelf life, <laughs> you begin to think about it in a very morbid way. You know, Right. And, and so for me, um, I think that, uh, you know, the less, the, 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 the thing that's, that I think is so cool is that in a connected economy, uh, with all of the resources we have that have democratized almost every other industry that there is, I think it gives us the ability to really connect what we do every day with what we do for a living in a way that we can passionately add value to other people's lives. And, and I, I have institutionalized that um, to where, you know, I and, and my kids see that, you know, they see that I love, love, love what I do. And, you know, Les Brown, the great motivational speaker, once said that they want he wanted them to inscribe on his tombstone, here lies Les Brown. He was all used up. And I guess I, I want to do the same thing. I want to I feel like all of the tremendous gifts and opportunities that were delivered to me, that I acted upon those, and that I did those in a, in a selfless way that looked at other people first, where I could provide you know, value. And, and I think when people do that, they find that the universe loves you know, individuals that connect with their dharma, with their intended purpose. And, and I know this sounds a little spiritual and esoteric, but it's really true. And I, in interviewing a lot of executives with uber success, the one thing I found with all of them is that they were all connected to this incredible passion. And I hope that people, that's how people remember me. And I hope that, uh, that people may want to even replicate some of that. I love that. I love that. Um, amazing. Thanks for sharing that. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for hanging out with me and Nick today. Hope you had uh, great fun. And more importantly, hope you got your hopes up that you can um, chase your dreams and that you're good enough to do so. Head on over to businessgenerals.com for all the show notes. Type in Nick in the search bar and everything will come up with all the things we've talked about. And um, then again, to connect with Nick for the book, uh, jump onto whatcustomerscrave.com and you can reach out at nickweb2bees.com and we'll link this up all in the show notes. Um, Nick, thank you very much for being on the Business Generals podcast today, for sharing your story with us. Absolutely grateful. You are a true business general. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me. Hey, what's up, Business Generals family? Thank you for joining me and for listening to the Business Generals podcast. Connect with me 
at Davis Mutabwa. That's D-A-V-I-S-M-U-T-A-B-W-A. Connect with me on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and you can certainly find me at our podcast blog, businessjournals.com. And while you're there, remember to access all the show notes, a ton of free resources, killer training, and so much more. Love you guys. Thank you for joining me. Ciao.